0: Hey, listeners, Dr. Taryn Marie here from Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. If our podcast speaks to you, consider leaving us a warm review at the top of the page on Spotify or at the bottom of the page on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews and opinions mean a lot to us, and it allows us to reach more good folks just like you. All right, now on to the show. Welcome to Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. I'm Dr. Taryn Marie, and on this series, we have the opportunity to hear from well-known people who tell their often surprising, lesser well-known stories of resilience. Welcome back, everyone, to Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. Today, we have with us New York Times bestselling author, Daniel Pink, who has been a tremendous thought leader in the areas of leadership, human performance, and simply how we get things done. And our conversation today is going to focus in on something we often don't like to talk about, and that is regret. Regret. Daniel wrote his newest book on how we can live without regret, and when we do have regrets, how those regrets can teach us something about the kind of life we want to live. Listen in now. Well, welcome back to Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. We are so delighted you are here with us. And of course, we have a wonderful, exceptional guest joining us for this particular episode. This is someone that I have long admired. This is Daniel Pink, author most recently of the book, The Power of Regret. And Daniel, I have read so many of your books uh, Drive being one of my consistent favorites. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so, so delighted. So I know that you're at home today where you live and work in Washington, DC. And I wanted to hear from you the power of regret. You know, that's a that's a, that's a human emotion uh so many of us I think really try to avoid and yet you have written an entire book on this topic what compelled you or propelled you toward regret
1: well I, I think largely because I had regrets of my own uh like everybody else um I, I, you know I, and I wanted and I wanted to make sense of them I was also at a point in my life where I looked up and realized that I had, more distance behind me than ahead of me, which is a very jarring life experience. And as I look backward, I realize that there were things that I wish I had done that I hadn't done. There were things that I wish I hadn't done. There were things that I wish I had done differently. And I wanted to make sense of that. And I also found that when I began very, very, very sheepishly talking to people about some of my own regrets... The reaction that i got was not what i expected i knew that nobody wanted to talk about regret but then when i brought it up i discovered that everybody wanted to talk about regret um, because people are walking around out there thinking they're the only ones who have these regrets when in fact it is a universal and ubiquitous emotion and so i wanted to write a book that made sense of that you know in part for myself i mean we you know there's an the old adage in social science all research is me search and so i think that's probably the case here
0: Mm-hmm. beautiful well, on our show, we, of course, give our listeners an opportunity, sort of a peek behind the curtain into a particular challenge, change, or complexity, the three Cs, as I like to call them, that has really formed you, right? This is about well-known people sharing their lesser well-known story of resilience. So as you think about your resilient story, and maybe this also is an intersection with regret... Tell us about a time when you faced a significant challenge change or complexity that has really formed you into the person that you are today.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if there's a particular moment, Taryn, but but there is a kind of a um, an era, a a, a a time period where a lot of that happened. Now, I uh, I basically set out professionally in one direction and ended up in a in a very different direction. Um, And that took some time to develop. I started out thinking that I was going to work in politics, uh, work in government. And I started doing that. And I was in, in some ways academically trained to do that and had never really had a deep desire to be a writer. And as time passed, it took me a while to reckon with the fact that the path that I had chosen or that the path the path that i had set out on this path of studying law and working in politics and working in policy was not the right path for me and that there was another path that was beckoning me that another path that was choosing me and that's not the kind of thing where people have an epiphany where one day they wake up and discover that it's something that people It gradually, or at least for me, at least, it gradually, very gradually dawned on me over several years. And I do think that, you know, uh, other people have, you know, legitimate, serious like health challenges or um, deeper existential, uh, deeper uh, life and death challenges. And, And for me, it was simply saying, wait a second, the person who I thought I was going to become is different from the person I actually am becoming.
0: Fascinating. You said so many powerful things there just about sort of that that era or that epoch, if you will, uh, of recognizing that the path that you thought that you would be on was actually not the path that was choosing you. And I think that language is, is so profound. So could you start with, how how was it that you knew or how how was it that you decided that the path that you were on and the sort of imagined future that you had wasn't actually going to be what would materialize for you?
1: Well, it's a it's a mix. It's a mix of push and pull, I think. Uh, so on the one. So on the one hand was you know, taking, and I think this happens, I think this happens to people. I mean, there's in some level, part of life is discovering who we are at that moment and who we are becoming at that moment. And that's not static. I think that we are in many, I think the healthiest people among us are evolving. We're becoming different people all the time. For me, it was being, you know, again, let's say that I I was deeply interested in politics. I was you know, pretty certain that I was going to devote my professional life to something like that politics government something kind of sort of like that and um and then when i finally got into doing it i realized that i actually liked it a lot less than i had expected that the 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 vision that i had in my head of what the day-to-day life was like was different from what the day-to-day life actually was like so that's one part of it the other part of it is that from the time that I was pretty young, I mean, even when the time when I was in high school, let's say college, I was always "quote unquote" writing on the side. I would write magazine articles and newspaper op eds and things like that on the side. I did it essentially as a hobby, in the same way that people play golf or backgammoners or or you know uh, go hunting, and um, and that was just something that I did. And what I realized is I kept working deeper and deeper in politics is that I kept doing this thing, quote unquote, on the side to the point where in order to continue doing it on the side required a lot of effort. Um, so that I would be working in these jobs in politics, but on the side, I would be writing newspaper and magazine articles, and I would have to stay up late in order to do that in the midst of these very, very demanding jobs. Uh, I was writing stuff that I, I, you know, very easily could, you know, should have gotten paid for, but I didn't take any money for it because I couldn't take any money under the ethics laws. Um, And, and so at a certain point, you have to, you know, at a certain point, you have to watch what you do. And, and, if if you have somebody who is spending time staying up late at night doing work for no money that's a pretty strong signal and it took me a while to to, to receive and hear that signal that that maybe what i was was a writer at least at that moment in my life i'm not sure that's going to continue forever but you know what was the the, the person who the, the 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 person i was becoming was different from the person i set out to be at least professionally
0: yeah That's right. And And I I think what you you have to do,
1: I think there are different ways, there are different ways you can deal with that. You can, you can say, you know what, not a good idea. This person you're becoming, you know what, let's actually steer the, let's steer the ship in a different direction. Let's try to prevent that from happening. Or you can say, wait a second, this is telling me something I got to actually have to lean into this rather than try to, then, then 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 try to, then try to stop it. Um, and, you know, I just think that there's an interesting question about who we are and who we become and, and and the extent to which we are. And this is why I said push and pull, I guess, the extent to which we are kind of um, um, pushing things on our own or being pulled by things elsewhere in our life.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate how you talked about that inflection point of sort of the imagined uh, life or imagined day-to-day that you would have versus the the reality or the
1: actuality
0: yeah. of the situation. And I think there's so many people and and certainly some of them are listening today who've been in that, who've been in that place, who've walked in those shoes, who have said, ah, you know, I wanted to be an attorney, but this is really different than I thought it was going to be, or a physician or, you know, a corporate executive, whatever, whatever it is. And I, that's a really, it's a really frightening place for so many people to say, Oof, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And this mm-hmm. is what I thought I was going to be. So what now? So what, mm-hmm. how, how is that experience for you to sort of come face to face with um, the, the chasm that existed between sort of what you had imagined and and your reality and and to have the courage to, to really, to really face that, you know, cause there's a subset well, of people that just pretend. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, obviously pretending is, obviously pretending is, is unhealthy. I, um, I, I think that the, that one has to recognize that it is a, it's like a, a it's like a dimmer switch on a light. It's not off on that. The, or it's or it's like focus on a camera. It's like the picture gradually becomes clear. It's not something that people realize in a snap. Um, it's something that people actually, that, that you have maybe an inkling of uh, at first. And then sometimes when you you have that inkling, your your tendency might be to dismiss it. No, nah, no, no, this is ridiculous. This is nothing. Um, and then if the inkling persists, maybe you start paying attention to it. And then maybe I think that you have some people will actively try to suppress that, or um, and other people will try to, will 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 try to embrace that. But I, I think what you have, I think that um, you know we we have this tendency to try to figure things out in advance. When in fact, we you know we, we, I think it's sometimes, Taryn, we have the the, the sequence wrong. Uh, we we tend to think that we need to figure things out and then act. When in fact, acting is a form of figuring things out. And so, th- I think that's a lesson to. I think that's that's a lesson to 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 derive from this, which is actually watch what you do um, rather than who you think you are. Um, watch what you actually do, <laughs> because that gives you clues about who you are. So a lot too too often we try to say who am I? Then what should I do? And when in fact, if you watch what you do, you discover who you are. Uh, the other thing, the other lesson that I think one can extract from this, which is a lesson that I've learned and and uh, by by failing on it earlier in my life, to, to go back to your point earlier, is the importance of what's called in in social psychology, surrogation, uh, which is that what we 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 tend to assume. Let's take let's take your example of being a doctor. We think we know what a being a doctor is because we have been to the doctor. Uh, We think we know what running a restaurant is because we've been to a restaurant. We think we know what it is to teach a second grade class because we've been in second grade, but we don't. And a way to figure that out is to talk to people like you who have done those things rather than assume that you know how to do that. Talk to people like similarly situated to you who have done those things. And so You know, like I I wouldn't tell anybody to go become a lawyer unless she talked to eight or nine lawyers about what they actually do all day. I wouldn't tell anybody who has these kinds of um, glorious notions of what it is to be a classroom teacher without going and talking to eight or nine people who are classroom teachers to find out what's the ground truth of doing that. You mentioned physicians. This is a reason why medical schools require students to do require applicants to do some form of shadowing beforehand. You have to you will not even get it looked at in a medical school application unless you have shown that you have shadowed physicians to see what those physicians actually do. And so, uh, you, you know, one of the does that principle of surrogation is one of the most one of the most princip- one of the most important principles I learned the hard way? Mm.
0: Yeah, I'll give, you, that's I give you an example.
1: I'll give you i give you an example. I went to law school without ever visiting a law school class. I went to law school without ever actually ta- going around and talking to people about what life was like and what what actually law school is. What do you do all day? I went to law school having never talked to anybody what it was to be a lawyer. OK, that's a bad idea.
0: Yeah, but at, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. So there was something that attracted you to being an attorney, a way that you thought it was, something that, at least for a time period, drew you toward that life purpose, no? No.
1: Well yeah, I mean, this is what we're saying. It's like you, you make assumptions about how something is, but you actually don't really know. you know what's right. it what's it like to, what's it what, okay so if I ask you what's it what's it like to, to live in I don't know have you ever lived in Greece? I'm just picking a country out of the blue. Have you ever lived in Greece?
0: You know I'm a quarter Greek, but I've never been to Greece.
1: Okay, great. neither have I. I've never been to Greece either. So this is a great example for both of us. So you and I might have idea of what it's like to live in Greece. but what do we know? We've never lived there but there are plenty of people (laughs) who have lived in Greece and and there are plenty of people who have lived in Greece and we can find people who are like us who have lived in Greece and said, what's it like to live in Greece? And their, their answer is going to be far more accurate than our speculation.
0: Right. Indeed. Indeed. Now you, you said something fascinating about the surrogation. You said, go talk to eight or nine people. That's a lot more people than I thought you would say one could go one should go and talk to you or could go and talk to you is there a sort of a magic number around eight or nine no i
1: just think i i just think no there isn't there isn't i just think that it has to be more than like one or two or even two or three Uh, i Mm -hmm. think there has to be there has to be some there has to be some volume um, because what you get, it's like, it's like when you do research or when you do interviews on, on, you know, when I, when I, when I write a magazine story or, or write a book and I'm doing interviews, you know, I like to do a decent number of, and, and it's on a particular topic. I like to do a decent number of interviews with people because after maybe five or six interviews, you start hearing the same thing over and over again. And that's the point mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, I think I've done the due diligence on that. But if you hear, if, you know, if you, if you talk to one or two people, they could be outliers for all, you know. And so you want to, you want to get, you sort of, a you want to get a variety of, of perspectives. So mm-hmm. there's nothing magic about eight or nine. It's just, it's just like, it's, it's more than you, it's more than we typically think. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, the other thing that you said, you know, sort of being at this inflection point, right? This fork in the road, right? Recognizing that you weren't sort of on the right path or the path that you had imagined was very different in, in reality. And then you also talked about recognizing that there was another path. And I love the language that you used here that was that was choosing you choosing mm-hmm. you. Could you could you talk to us about the experience of what it feels like to be chosen
1: by? Well, I don't want to I don't want to oversell that point about choosing what I do want to what I do want to reckon what I do want to go back to the point that I will oversell is. The point about watching what you do,
0: sell whatever you want to oversell.
1: The the point it's it's really the the question of 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 watching what you do, um, mm-hmm. and so there was something pulling me to to be writing on the side during these very difficult, demanding jobs, doing it for no money. That's a very mm-hmm. strong signal, and that suggests that there was there was something that there was something about that that was attractive. There was something about that that was alluring. There was something about that that had a magnetic pull on my time and my attention and my mental energy. And so that's what I mean by sort of, you have to be aware of those, uh, of, of how you're behaving. You have to, in some ways, sort of float above yourself and, and, and look at yourself like, A third person would look at you and anybody, my wife, I mean, a good example of this. My wife is like, hey, you're staying up until midnight working on these articles for no pay in the midst of these other demanding jobs. I think this writing thing is something that you might like. You know, it it sometimes takes another person to have the perspective, but we can we can acquire that perspective on ourselves through various forms of self distancing. So we often Mm -hmm. don't do that. But again, I just go back to the I just go back to the core principle, which is that something that I've learned and something that comes out in some of the research um, is. um. So if you look at the research of of uh, of uh, Armenia uh on career change, what she has found is that people say our, our notion of career change. Back to your point about inflection points, our notion of career change is that, OK, I'm doing X. I want to move to do Y there. Are, I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to have a plan to, to shift from X to Y when in fact, that's not how it works. What happens is that you have inklings and then you try stuff and it fails or succeeds and you try more stuff. And, and over time it, you evolve from X to Y you don't make a, often a sharp break from X to Y. And that certainly was my story.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you a question that you may not know the answer to and that's and that's okay. I just think that you know the answers to so many things. So, you might know the answer to this one. Why is it Daniel that we think that let's just take career transition or any transition for that matter. Why is it that we think that transition works that way even though it doesn't? I don't know.
1: I don't know. Um that's a good question. I don't I actually don't know. I don't know why that is. Um I think it's because that feels um neater and I think it feels more certain um and I think in some ways maybe we've been taught that um mm-hmm. but uh, but I don't I actually don't know the reason I'm just yeah. I'm totally ge- guessing on that Mhm
0: There's a there's a lot of people out there who would really like to know their purpose in life Yeah They'd really like to have that crystallized for them Uh, yesterday would be great, today's fine, right? And there is this belief, right? That it's all gonna sort of like come crashing down in our heads or we're gonna have this one aha moment about who we're meant to be, right? That old Mark Twain quote, you know, the two days in your life, the one you're born and the one you find out why, but nobody really finds out why on any one day.
1: I have nothing to add to that except for amen. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think
1: you're I think, you're I think you're I think you're I think you're I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, if you sit around waiting for epiphanies, you're going to have a very long wait. Um, You know, unless unless, you know, you're some kind of, you know, uh, legendary religious figure. um, But the but otherwise um, what you have to life is murky. Life evolves uh, and you have to pay attention to what, you know, a film that is in some ways unspooling in slow motion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Well, I've got your book right here. Uh, for those that are watching the sort of YouTube uh, video version, The Power of Regret. I love this balled up piece of paper here. That's very, it's very nice. How looking backward moves us forward. So something that I was thinking about, and I haven't finished the whole book yet, right? So you might mention this. There's, there's a, a, a film that came out a couple of years ago, maybe you remember this, and you might even refer to it in your book. Um, where they go and they get a tattoo that's like no regrets, but it ends up being no regrets, you know, which is like a very That's in the book. Yeah, I thought it might be. I thought it might be. What why why do we believe we're supposed to live a life of no regrets?
1: Well, I mean, I think part of it is is that on that, I think we've been sold a bill there for a few reasons. One, we've been sold a bill of goods. Um, we think that we're supposed to be positive all the time and never be negative. We're, we think we're supposed to look forward all the time and never look backward. And that's just fundamentally not true. Um, you know, uh, when it comes to positivity, we want to have a lot of positive emotions. Positive emotions are a big part of a happy life, or a satisfying life. Um, we should have lots of positive emotions. But you don't want to have only positive emotions because negative emotions are instructive. And when scientists have looked at the the array of human emotions, including our our, our unpleasant negative emotions, um, the one that stands out first and foremost is his emotion of regret. It's one of the most common emotions that human beings have. Uh, there's some research showing it's the most common negative emotion that human beings have. Um, so here you have this thing, this emotion that is widespread, that is everywhere, and yet is unpleasant. And so it must exist for a reason. And the reason is that it helps us get better. Uh, and we have, once again, evidence, evidence, evidence. We have evidence showing that That regret dealt with properly can help us become better negotiators, it can help us become better strategists, it can help us become clearer thinkers, it can help us become better problem solvers, avoid cognitive biases, find more meaning in life. But here I think is the heart of the problem. No one ever teaches us how to deal with regret. So what happens is this. Some of us ignore our regrets. We just blithely say no regrets because we think that the path to a good life is by being positive all the time and never negative, looking forward all the time and never looking back. That's BS. Ignoring your regrets is a bad idea. However, wallowing in your regrets, ruminating in your regrets, stewing in your regrets, getting captured by your regrets, that's a really bad idea too. What we want to do is something in between. We want to acknowledge our regrets, uh, confront our regrets, reckon with our regrets, use them as signals, use them as information, use them as data. And when we do that, it's a powerfully transformative emotion. But no one's ever taught us how to do that.
0: Mm, I love that. And before we started recording, you and I were just having a a moment to connect with one another and and sort of drop in before we started the interview. You talked, Daniel, about four core regrets that exists for many people are sort of across the board. Could you tell us about those?
1: Sure thing, but let me show my work here because again, you know, um, I want to, you know, so, so the, the claims that I was making about regret a moment ago come from 50 or 60 years of research in social psychology, uh, in developmental psychology and cognitive science and in neuroscience. Um, uh, what, But what What I also did is I collected a lot of regrets on my own. Uh, so I s- established something called the World Regret Survey, where we invited people around the world to submit a big regret. We now have a database of over 23,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And when you go through that massive trove of regrets, what you find is exactly what you just mentioned, which is that around the world, people seem to have the same four core regrets. Regrets with remarkable universality. And I think these four core regrets tell us something profoundly important about what a good life is.
0: Amazing. Now can we hear about the four the four regrets? Oh,
1: yeah, sure. Yeah, we can talk about them. Yeah. Okay. So 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 one is one is what I call foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are about small decisions people make early in life that accumulate terrible consequences later on. So I spent too much and saved too little. And now I'm broke. I didn't take care of my I didn't eat right. I didn't exercise. And now I'm profoundly out of shape. I didn't work hard in school. And now I'm having problems getting a job because I don't have any skills. So foundation regrets are um, those kinds of decisions. Um, Boldness regrets, boldness regrets are um, being at a juncture in your life and having a choice to play it safe or take a chance. And what we find is that Uh, Most people regret not taking a chance. Some people regret taking a chance and having it go south on them, but not that many. Uh, Overwhelmingly, Mm. people regret not taking a chance. So it could be not asking somebody out on a date, not traveling, not speaking up, not starting a business. Third one, moral regrets. Moral regrets are, um, you know, you have a choice. At a certain moment in your life, you can do the right thing, you can do the wrong thing, you can take the high road, you can take the low road, and when you do the wrong thing or take the low road, most of us, most of the time, end up regretting it. Not everybody, but most of us. And so in this database of 23,000 plus regrets, we have a lot of regrets in this category about bullying people earlier in life. Um, I bullied somebody when I was younger, and now 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, they still regret it. A lot of regrets, Mm. huge numbers of regrets about marital infidelity. I cheated on my spouse, and I'm ashamed, and I've regretted it ever since that happened. Um, Fourth category are what I call connection regrets. These are regrets about relationships, not only romantic relationships, indeed, not even mostly romantic relationships. But um, but the full suite of relationships in our lives where we have a friendship, we have a connection with a relative, whatever. And over time that relationship, you know, that really that relationship was intact or should have been intact, but over time it comes apart, usually slowly, usually drifting apart rather than through some kind of knockdown, drag out fight. And what happens in those cases is that we want to reach out. But we feel awkward about reaching out because it's been a while we think the other side's not going to care so we don't do anything and the drift widens and we regret it even more and so so it's foundation regrets uh, which are if only i take if only i'd done the work boldness regrets if only i'd taken the chance moral regrets if only i'd done the right thing and connection regrets if only i'd reached out around the world with incredible universality, these are the things that people seem to regret.
0: Mm, thank you for that. I love those categories that you you put them into, and oof, I can only imagine the the heaviness of reading through this survey twenty three thousand regrets all in one place. I love that you created this survey, and what an amazing um, body of of research and and collection of people's experiences.
1: Well, yeah, and it wasn't actually that dispiriting because the thing is when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. And that's the other mm. secret about regret. So that regret oper- so so regret operates. Here's the thing. Say you've 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 done something or haven't done something 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. If you still remember it today and it still bothers you today, that's a very strong signal. You know, there's mm-hmm. stuff I did last week that I don't even remember. There's stuff I did last month. Most of the stuff I did or or decisions I made or actions I took last month, I barely remember. But if there are things that happened a year that you did or didn't do a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and not only do you remember them, but they evoke this very sharp emotion, that's a strong signal. That's telling you something. And so these regrets tell us something. They, They tell us what we value. And so people you know why do people value uh, why do people have foundation regrets because they value stability a good life has some stability to it and so if you do if you take actions that are your fault that compromise the stability of your life um that you know people regret that because they val- because they value that stability uh why do why do we have connection regrets because we value love uh, why do we have moral regrets because we value goodness Uh, Why do we have boldness regrets? Because we value growth. Uh, And so these regrets tell us something profoundly important.
0: For all of you listening in to Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience, I want to share with you an online course that we have on our website. We're going to go ahead and drop the website in our show notes, or you can go to www.resilience leadership.com and check out our offerings. We've got an incredible course for you called Flourish the Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. So if you love what you're learning about in this this podcast. If you love these conversations on resilience, if you love hearing about how you can more effectively face the inevitable moments of challenge, change, and complexity, or the three C's as I call them, in your life, then go ahead and check out our online course, Flourish, The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People, because what you are going to find is a one-on-one tutorial with me around each of those five practices, as well as an introduction and a conclusion. We've got hours of content that is going to allow you to engage in direct coaching and learning with me on the five practices. Go ahead and check it out, and I hope you'll join us in our online course, Flourish, the Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. One of the things I'm struck by, Daniel, in your four regrets so it's, it seems to me from the outside looking in that regret category, number one, foundational regrets, this is, this is iterative, iterative, right? Like, a, as you said, it's a series of sort of small decisions that are being made over time.
1: Well, it's cumulative. It's not really iterative. It's cumulative. It oh, accumulates over time. Yeah.
0: Yes. I appreciate that. That is a much better word, more precise there. And and what I meant. Thank you for that. Um, then regret categories two through four, boldness, regrets, moral regrets, connection regrets. The way that you describe these, these seem to happen like all in one moment, right? Like I've got this opportunity and I'm bold or not. I've got this opportunity to protect someone or be a bully or you know, be part of the problem. And I make a decision in that moment and connection regrets, right? It You said it sort of percolates into this big blow up you know, sort of moments where things fall apart. So, number one is cumulatives, and it seems like two, three, and four just like in the snap of a finger. There's a, there's a moment where everything changes. Am I understanding that right?
1: It's a good, interesting insight. I think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, I, I do think that that boldness regrets are about. Um, I think that if you think about foundation regrets, like if, if I uh, in a, if I in a given moment decide. I'm not going to exercise today. That's not devastating, right? If I make that indecision every day for a year, that begins to add up. If I do it every day for a decade, it really adds up. So, but each in, the individual decision in those cases, you're absolutely right is not cataclysmic. In other cases, if I um, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit murkier because if I if I have an opportunity to uh, take a, a trip that I've always wanted to take but I'm I'm scared about doing it then that's a moment, but also I'm probably going to have those kinds of opportunities at other points. And I'm also going to deny them. So it's a little bit cumulative, but it's a little bit more in the moment with the, um, with the moral regrets, what you hear from people is, um, you hear some of it, like, like I cheated on my spouse and that was like a moment. That's a decision. That's something you did at that moment. But you also hear, um, um, I was, uh, sort of a, a pattern of unkindness. Uh, so I was unkind to my, um, siblings uh for years and years and years and years and years so i think it's an it, it's a it's a it's a it's an important distinction that you're making it's a very good point um it because life is murky it doesn't cleave perfectly but it's a it's a very important it's a very important point certainly the thing about foundation regrets is that is that they are they are they are cumulative very few people say oh i so regret not going out for a run um on the third tuesday of march in 2014 Hmm
0: hmm Yeah. I love, I love how you shared that. Well, really, I was trying to think to myself as we were talking, right? Like, is there a way for me to know, or is there a way for us to know in the moment, Hey, I'm doing something right now, or I'm about to do something that I'm really going to regret, you know, is I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, is there, is there a signal for us that we can, that we can tap into, which is why I was sort of looking at these four categories to think, okay, is there a, a, a moment or a threshold, right, where there's going to
1: be a. Uh, you talked about. Well, I think signals that. Early. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's. I I think that I don't know if there's always a signal, but I think that there's a technique that one can use to mm. to find that signal. Uh, I I don't I don't think you one should necessarily rely on the signal coming to them, but I think that in those cases that you're talking about, there is a technique where you can go out and basically put up your antenna and find the signal. Uh, And one thing that I would recommend in those cases is to, if you're at the juncture of making a decision, um, so and it could be any of these things. So if you're at the juncture of of making a decision about whether you should exercise today, um, more mundane and cumulative, but if you're at the juncture of saying, should I ask that person out on a date, or should I uh, take the high road or the low road, or should I reach out to this friend who I haven't talked to for a while? I think one thing that you can do to acquire that signal is to ask yourself, you know, go and get advice from someone who cares about your best interests who you haven't met yet, which is the you of 10 years from now. Think about having Mm. a conversation with the you of ten years from now. What would the you of ten years from now want you to do? And it's very clear that the you of ten years from now is going to want you to exercise. The you of ten years from now is going to want you to ask that person out on a date. The you of ten years from now is going to want you to take the high road, not the low road. And the you of ten years from now is not going to um, is going to, is going to want you to reach out to that, re- reach out to that friend. And so that's a technique where you can, to your point, you know, to using your signal metaphor where you can go out and try to find the signal. I think it's less likely that the signal is going to find you in that, in that case, in part, because the action, the, the, the action that, we might be more likely to take is often the easier action. It's easier not to ask the person out on a date. It's easier not to reach out to the friend. It's easier often to take the low road rather than the high road. It's easier to sit around and eat some Cheetos rather than go off for a run. So one way to push ourselves past that inertia, one way to put us push up uh, push ourselves past that laziness is to actually imagine having a conversation with the future version of ourselves and having the future ver- and asking that future version of ourselves for advice on what to do in this moment.
0: Hmm, that's wonderful. I love I love this idea of the you the you from the you of 10 years from now. That's how you said it. That's that's fantastic. And um I love the idea of thinking about like current me present me doing future me a solid.
1: Right. Right. And and even in and, and even it's not even so much doing a solid It's basically like get advice. You know, just asking, you call, you know, it's like calling up a friend for advice, and 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 you know, the you the of ten years from now definitely cares about your 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 well being. The you of ten years from you know, and and the thing is, it's like the reason that this is not like magical at all is that. We have a pretty good sense of what the you that what the Taryn of 10 years from now or the Dan of 10 years from now or the Fred or Maria or whoever of 10 years from now is going to be interested in. And so the me of 10 years from now is not going to care two wits about what I had for breakfast this morning. All right. I'm not going to regret. Oh, my God, I had I had granola, not yogurt. Uh, I'm not even going to remember that. Um, You know, the me of 10 years from now is not going to care whether my wife and I bought, you know, last year a, a gray car or a blue car. But the me of 10 years from now is going to care about some other stuff. The, the me of 10 years from now is going to care about whether I built a stable foundation for myself and for my family. The me of 10 years from now is whether, you know, given the, you know, my the opportunities that I have, whether I actually was bold and and spoke up about things that mattered and took risks when they were sensible. Um, the me of 10 years from now, if if I if the me of today takes a low road and does something unethical. The me of 10 years from now is going to have a few words with me. And so, this is a, just another kind of thinking technique that we can use to acquire the signal about what we should do today.
0: Mm. So good. So good. I know some of our listeners are going to be familiar with some of the research that's been done on regret um, with people that are in hospice, right? Um, by definition, people that have, you know, sort of six months or less to live and that sort of body of work about interviewing people who are in hospice who are reflecting on their life and their regrets and there's really like a similar kind of patterning there where um, those top three to five regrets um, you know one of them is about people wish they had lived you know an authentic life i know you're familiar with this work um, people wish that they had worked less um, there's certainly boldness, um, regrets that emerge there where people wish they'd, you know, taken taken a chance or spoken up or done something new or different or outside of their comfort zone. How do you sort of think about that body of work with people who are actually at end of life, reflecting on their experience um, of regret and what you uncovered with the World Regret Survey and those four areas of regret? Do those line up well, for you?
1: Yeah, more or less. I mean, I think that a lot of, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of some of those end of life regrets for for two reasons. Number one, it's like, it's all, it's basically all anecdotes. um, And it's not anything systematic. And again, as I said before, we have 60 years of research, like real research in this emotion of regret. And I take that a lot more seriously than I do an accumulation, you know, a few gathered anecdotes. So that's one thing. The second thing is that you know, I don't really love the idea uh, much of, you know, uh, having people reckon with their regrets on their deathbed, uh, because mm-hmm. it's way too late. You know, and mm-hmm. so, um, and, and 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 I'm not, you know, again, I'm, I'm not sure that people necessarily have the greatest clarity in their life when they're dying. Um, it, you know, presumes that people are able to see things more clearly when they're, you know, drawing their final breath. That might be true. I'm not sure that it's true. Um, and so I'd rather have people reckon that with their regrets earlier, I mean, in the 23,000 regrets that I have, they span the ages up between, you know, 18 and 90 something. So people are having, people have regrets at all stages of their life. And when you're young, before you're dying, you can actually do something about that. Now that said, some of the, uh, some of the anecdotes about end of life regrets do line up with this. Um, you have people who, um, regret, you know, missing, not being connected to people that they love. Um, you have, um, you have the regrets about working too hard to me. I didn't get a huge number of those. Uh, but I think that those are really regrets about not being with people you love. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that those are, um, I think that those are, 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 you know, consistent. So I, so I think that they, I think that they line up, but I'm much more, um, apt to take seriously you know real scientists doing real real research on this emotion uh rather than you know uh, you know a few gathered anecdotes
0: got it got it um do you know my area of expertise is in resilience mental health and well-being talk to us daniel about the intersectionality that you see if there is one between um identifying our regrets um, looking backward, as you say, in order to move forward. And how might that positively contribute to our own resilience, mental health and well-being?
1: Well, profoundly, um, you know, so so again, if you um, yeah, you know, let, let's go back to these two poles of, of, of how people de- tend to react to regret. There's the one pole is ignoring it. Um, and that's not resilience. That's not that's not resilience. That's that's delusion right and then you have people who get as you know from your stuff you know you, who get captured by it who get brought down by it who get debilitated by it that's the opposite of resilience and so i think that when we actually think about our regrets when we when we use these these this this is this, this painful emotion as a signal uh, and and systematically try to draw lessons from it to guide the future then i think that that is i think that is resilience um and and i think the other thing that 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 comes out is that this is it's not something that I mean, what I mean, what's your view? Is your view is your view that people that some people are resilient and some people aren't, or that anybody can learn the habits of resilience?
0: Uh, my view is that resilience is the essence of being human. So we have survived every rejection, disappointment, loss, you know, thing that's happened, like to this moment, me, you, everyone listening, all of us as humans. And so if I just give you sort of 30 seconds on this. We've positioned resilience in a way that's unhelpful because we talk about it as being something we have to go out and get, something that is not an inherent part of what it means to be human. And therefore, sometimes it shows up a little bit like the phenomenon of work-life balance where people have this like resilience dread where they're like, oh, crap. You know, it sounds nice to be resilient, but it's going to be like another thing that I get to feel bad about that I don't have enough of, or I'm not doing it right. So mm-hmm. um, we're all resilient. It's the essence of being human. And the opportunity is that we can amplify or enhance the resilience that exists for each of us today.
1: Right. Yeah, right. So, yeah. So I think that, I think that it's pretty, I think that it's pretty consistent Um, that, that you know, I think all of us are, I mean, I guess, I guess if I can rephrase it, I hope I'm getting this right, that all of us are in some ways inherently resilient. Is that, is that accurate? You got it. And so, and I think that all of us inherently have the capacity to, to deal with, to deal with regret. And, and, and I think that sometimes we understate people's Resilience, and we understate people's capacity to deal with with regret. That we presume that people are more fragile than they really are, and and I think that's a mistake. I think that undersells. I think that undersells people, and so Mm -hmm. our ability to our ability. Now, the thing is, it's like you know, it's not like every. I, I think that some of this is learned behavior. I think some of it is again. If you think about the, the presence of regret as part of our cognitive machinery, that is an evolutionary adaptation. There can't be any, I think there's little question about that. That said, how we use that adaptation is in some ways learned behavior. And so, and especially if we're in a culture that says you shouldn't have regrets, that feeling bad is a sign that there's something wrong with you, that's debilitating. But if we have a culture that says, everybody has regrets they're part of the human experience um the, the the fact that you have a regret makes you human uh and that there are and that you should you should talk about it you should make sense of it and draw lessons from it and if you do that it can be a powerfully transformative emotion that's um that's incredibly important um and so i think that those those the idea of re- of responding to regret and resilience works together extremely well
0: i love it that's fantastic. Well, Daniel, we're coming to the close of our time together. I wonder if there's, you know, something that you'd like to share with us that we didn't touch on, or maybe a question I didn't ask you, um, something that's been really powerful that you've shared with audiences, or a, you know, maybe a common inquiry people have had that you'd you'd like to leave us with before we check in and share with our listeners where they can find you.
1: You know, I think that the most important thing um, in terms of reckoning of dealing with our regrets is that um, that what we should be doing is we should be talking about them. And so if you're running an organization or or if you're a parent, um, one of the best things that you can do is is tell your team or tell your kids, hey, here's a regret that I have. Here's what I learned from it. And here's what I'm going to do about it. And that's a way to normalize this very, very normal emotion. But. Uh, but do it in a way that it's productive, that isn't simply self-flagellation or emoting, but that is about using this regret, this emotion, this profoundly human emotion, as a tool for forward progress. And and I think that's among the simplest things that you can do: talk to people about a regret that you have, but don't leave it there. Tell them what you learned from it, and then tell them what you're going to do about it.
0: I love it. It's a powerful, powerful framework for us to use going forward. It reminds me of. Um something similar that I talk about in terms of telling our resilience stories, right? So tell our regret stories. Don't leave it there. Talk about what you learned and talk about what you're going to do about it.
1: Absolutely right.
0: Beautiful. Well, Daniel Pink, I just feel like I got smarter while I was talking with you here. I love the (laughs) way that your mind works. I love your deep commitment to uncovering uh, new ways of looking at, you know, call it um, old or existing phenomenon. I love your commitment to evidence-based practice. Uh, And in every single book you have written, seriously, you have turned some of the conventional thinking in that area on its head, whether it's, um, you know, to sell as human, um, whether it's, you know, drive about what really motivates people, So many, so much powerful work that you've done, and now here you are um, with the power of regret. So I'm just delighted to have you on the episode. I've admired your work for some time. Thank you. Share with our listeners. You're welcome. Share with our listeners, Daniel, where they can connect with you, you know, more deeply online.
1: Uh, The best thing is probably to go to my website, uh, uh, danpink.com, d-a-n-p-i-n.com. Uh, I've got a newsletter, um, all kinds of free resources, information about the books, all that good stuff.
0: Amazing, thank you so much. I received that newsletter and it is excellent. Highly recommend it to all of our
1: listeners. Well, thanks, it's going out. We got another edition going out tomorrow as we speak here. That, that won't be true for all of you listeners because there won't be one tomorrow in all odds, but there will be one soon.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being here on Flourish or Bold stories of resilience true delight to have this conversation with you and i feel like i learned so much about regret thank you so much
1: thanks for having me
0: i hope you feel as inspired by the insightful work that daniel pink has done on regret and i hope you'll run out and get his book thank you so much for tuning in to the flourish or fold stories of resilience podcast we'd ask you to like, comment, download, and share with your friends, family members, and those close to you. This is how we get the message out about this podcast. In addition, what I'd love to know from you is how did you like this episode? I can't wait to hear more about what you learned from this conversation with me and Daniel Pink. Until next time, this is Dr. Taryn Marie from Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. For all of you listening in to Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience, I want to share with you an online course that we have on our website. We're going to go ahead and drop the website in our show notes or you can go to www.resilience-leadership.com and check out our offerings. We've got an incredible course for you called Flourish, The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. So if you love what you're learning about in this podcast, if you love these conversations on resilience, if you love hearing about how you can more effectively face the inevitable moments of challenge, change, and complexity or the three C's as I call them in your life, then go ahead and check out our online course, Flourish, the Five Practices of Highly Resilient People, because what you are going to find is a one-on-one tutorial with me around each of those five practices, as well as an introduction and a conclusion. We've got hours of content that is going to allow you to engage in direct coaching and learning with me on the five practices. Go ahead and check it out. And I hope you'll join us in our online course, Flourish the Five Practices of Highly Resilient People.